Okay, grab your Bibles, your electronic devices, turn to Mark chapter 9. Okay, so here's how we're going to begin. So in uh, 1986, I was a junior at UMass, University of Massachusetts, ZooMass to those of us that are familiar with it. Uh, and while I was there, I was recruited by a very mysterious fellow uh, to lead a secret, top secret, off-the-record team of four other college students to uh, spend the summer and to insert ourselves um, into the then Marxist Soviet Union. It was so secretive that it had a code name called North Star. Uh, it was only known by a handful of people in a thousand person, like 19,000 staffed campus ministry organization. And of those 19,000, only a, like a team of like 10 people even knew what this was. And so I was surprised when I was approached. I was asked, there was like 100 other college students from all over the country were asked to do this. And I'm like, well, y'all know me. Those of you who do know me, I'm like, yeah, of course I'll do this. This sounds awesome. Um, so our team entered the Soviet Union by train via Helsinki, Finland. Uh, other teams were entering in by plane and by uh, boat from all over Europe, the point was to have these 100 students come in from different entry points so as not to draw attention to ourselves, right? Um, and we were told, even if we saw teams like in different cities, like if we happened to see each other in Moscow or Leningrad or Novgorod or Kiev or at Kharkov, uh, we were told, do not look at each other. Pretend you don't know each other. Don't even give them a glance. Just move on. And you four or you Five that are on the team, that's it. That's your team, and that's all you know. So our train stopped at the border, Helsinki and, and Leningrad at, at Russia, the Russia border. Armed guards came on with AK-47s. Uh, it was like right out of a movie. And that's when I started wondering, why did they put so many of us on the same train? Like 50 of us that we were all pretending not to know on a train going into... Leningrad. Well, the side note is, is that the, uh, the travel agency, the booking agency in New York, saw this uh, and thought it was, oh, all these college kids going to the Soviet Union. Let's just put them all on the same train. So they made a colossal mistake, which we found out later. Uh, and they were thinking, perhaps all these college kids, it's wonderful. They could connect with each other. So they wanted to put us all on the same train, right? Now, the Soviets, so that you know, if you don't remember, did not allow Bibles into their country. It was against the law to be a Christian. It was treason against the state to be a Christian, which maybe many of us need to be reminded that's the ultimate end of Marxism. Visitors were allowed to bring their own personal Bible, and so we were given what was called, what we called affectionately, the A-bomb Bible. It was an English-Russian translation of the Bible that had uh, all these apologetics materials in the back, and it had all these discipleship materials in the back, and it was about this big, and it was green. It was like this, and it was about that thick, and it was papered uh, in green paper. And so we all carried these things. Each team was allowed to bring one in. One person could bring it in. 
So the armed guard enters our compartment, just like they told us in the training. Look, one guard's going to come into your compartment. He's going to point to one of you. One of you open your bags. You show your bags, and then he'll take that and move on to the next compartment. So he walks in. He grunts uh, to Jim. Uh, open, your, you know, open your Bible. He didn't say hello. He wasn't, he didn't even, I don't even think he talked. I think he pointed and pointed at a bag. Jim opens his bag. He looks at it. He's on his way. And then that's when I heard the screaming. And so the guard and I run out of our compartment, and two compartments down, evidently, uh, the guard did the same thing to a girl in one compartment, and he pulls out, or she pulls out, one Bible, two Bibles. And then it was pandemonium everywhere, because the guard started putting it together real quickly, 50 college students, two Bibles, and now Everyone's bag was searched, and every single bag had the exact same Bible in it, the A-bomb Bible. Uh, they took our passports. We sat there for hours, and I'm thinking, that's it. We're not going in country. It's over. A couple hours later, we're in country without our Bibles. I don't think you ever saw 50 college students pray so hard. I mean, I wish you could have seen uh, the young lady was white as a ghost, and she was shaking in fear when that guard was yelling at her. And the guards were yelling at all of us. And I can tell you to this day, I am absolutely knew that the Holy Spirit was giving me the fruit of self-control. Well, we were followed the whole trip. We had a constant tail everywhere we went. It was, it was kind of a joke. We started naming our followers, our trailers, you know. Sergey. We just started calling them all kinds of different names. Uh, one morning in Novgorod, two weeks later, we're eating breakfast at the uh, Interest Hotel, which everyone knew was run by the KGB. It's the, it was the hotel for all foreigners, right? <laughs> you knew that we knew our phones were wired. We knew there were bugs everywhere at the thing. Uh, we had strange conversations, like we would meet people, and all of a sudden, things that we had said, and we, we did this on purpose. We'd say things in the room. I mean, these are four guys. You know, we'd be in the room, and we'd say things, and then we'd have conversations with the staff and stuff, and we'd be like, and they would ask us things about what we just said. It was absolutely, for us, it was a lot of fun, but I know it wasn't a lot of fun for the people there. So this guy, this friendly, smiling face, um, goes the next morning at breakfast, and he says this. He says, you came in at 2 a.m. last night. What? What were you doing? Smiling. And I'm smiling back at him. I said, man, we, we were enjoying your beautiful city. And then he lost his smile. And he said, where were you? Who were you with? Give me their name. Now, what were we doing? We had met a college student. And... Uh, we started talking to him about Jesus. He couldn't get enough of hearing about Jesus. And he says, can you come and tell my family about Jesus? And we said, sure. And so we go to his house, and there are 20 family members there. And we were there from like 4 o'clock to 2 in the morning because they couldn't get enough of Jesus. Who were you with? What were you doing? Give me their names. My smile's gone. 
And I said, we were enjoying your beautiful city. There's a demographer named uh, Rudolf Rummel. Rummel. He's a demographer of government mass murder. He estimates that the human toll of 20th century Marxism to be 61 million lives in the Soviet Union, 78 million lives in China, and then roughly 200 million lives in all the world. So that comes to a grand total of 339 million lives. Three hundred and thirty-nine souls. In his 1983 Templeton Prize address, so this was three years before we were in country, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, a, a, a Russian literary giant and genius. If you haven't read any of his stuff, please read it. It'll be worth, worth your time. He offered the ultimate reason for all the horrors of Soviet communism. He says this, men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. Men and women and children have forgotten God. We forget God. If you look at your personal life, it doesn't take much to realize that, does it? If we look at our personal lives, we can see that forgetting God explains a lot. If we look at our relationships, we can see that forgetting God explains a lot. If we look at our cultural chaos and our ideological confusion and our ecclesiastical confusion and our racial, political, whatever's going on, confusion. Forgetting God explains a lot. We forget God. It's what we do. We're experts. We're professionals. So, if you are one who does what I'm going to call the great forgetting, which I stole from a book that I just read called The Rise of Self. If you're part of the great forgetting crew, this text is for you. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. All right, so we're going to do Mark 9, 14 through 29, same drill. Some will be up here. Sometimes I'll read off here. We'll just see what happens. And when they came to the disciples, who's the they? Who's the they there? The they is uh, Peter, James, and John, and Jesus. They went for a hike into the mountain. Something really weird and strange happened up there. The three are still kind of like in shock. They're still kind of like their jaws dropping, and they're heading down the mountain, and they came to the disciples, who are now the, the nine that were left behind, all right? So, and when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, and he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast him out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? 
How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately, that's one of Mark's favorite words, immediately, pay attention. It convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can. All things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to him, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So, Lord, we ask you by the power of your spirit that even now that you would shine on the page. So, Lord, we need you. And you show up here. So, oh, Jesus, would you show up with the wonders of a comprehensive salvation, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we (laughs) forget God, Um, and so is everyone else in this passage. You see this? Just let's look at the characters real quick so that you know the culture is forgetting God. That's the crowd, the great crowd that's mentioned in the text. That's the culture. Uh, The pastors and the seminary professors and the professional Bible teachers have forgotten God. Uh, That's the scribes that are in this text. And then you have the church, those who actually profess to not forget God and profess to believe and actually do ministry so that others may believe they're forgetting God. And who's the church? Well, that would be the disciples, this new Jesus movement that's coming up. And then you have just to zone in or zoom in on a a one person so you get an inside look at some life, some tragedy that's going on in this text. You have a desperate dad whose son is being torn to pieces by a cosmic beast. A hateful cosmic beast. How do we know everyone is forgetting God in this text? Because Jesus says so. Look at verse 19. And Jesus, he answered them. He sees the crowd. He sees his three that was with him. He sees the disciples that were unable to do anything. He sees the Father. He sees the scribes. He sees humanity, and he says, Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? People that keep forgetting God. How long am I to bear with you? We forget God. It's what we do. It's who we are. You you might say it's in our nature. So what do people who forget God need? What do you and I need? What does the culture need? 
What does a desperate dad need? What do professional Bible scholars, seminary professors need? What does the church need? What's the answer? What's the solution? And we all know it because we've, if we've been in church for 10 seconds, we know the answer. Faith, we all say. Faith is what we need. We all need faith. But why is that the answer? Well, because Jesus says so, right? So remember the desperate dad pleads with Jesus in verse 21? If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus answers in verse 23. See that? And Jesus said to him, all things are possible for you, dad. All things are possible for the one who believes. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying, dad... If you have faith, then your son will be healed. Well, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Because that, uh, I mean, we're often told the same thing in church, right? This is very familiar ground. We're often told that if you just have faith, then salvation is yours. If you just have faith, then God will love you more. If you just have faith, then you'll connect more deeply with God. If you just have faith, then God will move towards you. If you just have faith, then um, you'll connect and experience him more, right? And we say things like, we hear this in church a lot, that if you just have faith, then sanctification is yours, right? If you just have faith, then your life will change. You'll, your relationships will change. Your marriage will change. You'll love your kids more. You'll parent better. You'll make better friends. You'll You'll live more victoriously. You'll have more spiritual power. If you just have faith, then, then you can do big things for God. Then God will use you greatly if you just have faith. Not only do we hear this, we also say this to each other. We say things like, look, if you just had faith, you wouldn't be such a wreck. If you just have faith, then things would be different in your life, in your home, at school, at work, in the church, in the culture. Look, if you just had faith, you'd, well, be like me. But all of us know, and everyone in this passage knows, that faith is the hardest thing in the world to do. How do we know faith is the hardest thing in the world to do? Because Jesus says so. Immediately the father, the child cries out, I believe, but help my unbelief. No matter how long you've been a Christian, no matter how long you've been a pastor, no matter how long you've been a Bible teacher, no matter how long you've been an elder or a deacon, no matter how long you've been in charge of ministries, no matter how long you've been doing ministry, no matter how long you've been a missionary, a spiritual leader, a deacon, no matter how long, faith is the hardest thing to do. No matter how much you read your Bible, no matter how much you pray, no matter how much you tap into the Holy Spirit, no matter how much you feel when you sing, no matter how many marches for social justice you participate in, no matter how often you talk about Jesus, faith is the hardest thing in the world to do. 
matter how desperate you are, no matter how weak you feel, no matter how much suffering and distress and heartache and hardship you experience, faith is the hardest thing in the world to do. Now to help us, this text actually wants to help us because we're, we're prone, the great forgetting is so part of our nature and it's so us that we actually don't think times faith is the hardest thing in the world to do. We actually say, no, faith is just a, a light switch. You just, you flip it on. You, you choose to decide to believe. We do things like, well, look, it's like a, a, a rabbit and a hat. You just reach in and you pull it out. We might have some mystery around it, but we're going to give you a technique on how to reach in and find it and yank it out. And so this text really does want to help us. It wants to help you and me actually feel the hardness of not being able to have faith. And so what it does in verse 26, it gives us a visual aid. It says this, and after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said he is dead. And the picture is this, what Jesus and the Bible wants us to see is that the dead have no faith. There is no faith in the dead. You can't pull faith out of the hat of the dead. It's just not there. It's the great forgetting that came into this world way back in the beginning of the whole thing. So we forget God. It's our deepest problem. We need faith. It's our deepest solution. It's the biggest answer to everything. But faith is the hardest thing in the world to do. So don't miss this. The son's life or death hangs on the faith of his father. Do you see this? The son's life and death depends on the faith of his father. And when his father begins to realize that, he is forced to admit, I am weak. I have no faith. I can't believe. Help my unbelief. In other words, the Father is saying to Jesus, Jesus, I need you. Which, of course, is the whole point of the passage. Which, of course, is exactly what faith is. I need Jesus. And the Bible says, faith. That's faith. Will McDavid says it this way, the place of impossibility, the hardest thing in the world to do, the place of impossibility is the place of grace. God is always our rescuer. And crying out in a state of helplessness is paradoxically, the most authentic act of faith that's possible in the here and now. The challenge isn't to develop perfect faith. Our only task is to recognize how far from faith we really are. True faith lives only in the depths of realizing you are faithless and utterly dependent upon God. Jesus, I need you. 
And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. What is happening here? What's happening here is need meets Jesus. Need meets Jesus. Immediately before the events of this text, remember, Jesus, Peter, James, and John are on the mountain, and something strange, a stranger thing happens on there. It's really kind of funny. It does say that he transfigured in the Greek, but then it's so fun to just look at how everybody tries to explain that because no one really knows what transfigured mean, and there's all these different theories, and there's all these different theologies, and there's all these different views and perspectives. But something happened that was obviously strange. So let's just say that, all right? It happens. And when it happened, they're walking down the mountain, and Jesus turns to his disciples, and he cautions them to say, hey, what you just saw here today, Man, don't you tell anybody until after the resurrection. And they're all like, okay. They're walking down the mountain, and the text says this is what they start saying to each other. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning, what does rising from the dead mean? So moments later, they now enter this crowd. They now enter the chaos. They now enter all this stuff that's going on. And they see Jesus say this to this command the spirit to come out of this boy. They're watching all of this, right? Remember, they were just talking about what does rising from the dead mean? And now they start seeing this thing happen. And it's completely bizarre. They're in awe. They're watching someone just speak. And power happens. Things change. And then the text says, and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. What does rising from the dead mean? They're saying, they're walking. Out. What does rising from the dead mean? What is he talking about rising from the dead? Who can rise from the dead? What is all this talk about rising from the dead? And Jesus' first answer is, I take you by the hand and I raise you up. first answer in the gospel of Mark is, watch this. The dead. What happened? Need meets Jesus. Some of you are trying so hard this morning to have faith. I know you. I try so hard to have faith. I mean, let's just be real, can we? Perhaps you're trying so hard to have faith so you can become a Christian. You've been a skeptic your whole life, and you've been convinced intellectually now, and you've looked at all the historical reliability of the Bible. You've looked at C.S. Lewis, his Lord, liar, lunatic. You've wrestled with uh, the supernatural, and that's not such a wrestling today because people are into the supernatural, and... Uh, you, you have more issues about, you know, how God can allow things, and that got resolved for you. At least it started slowly to make some sense. And so you, you want to become a Christian, and you're trying so hard to have faith. Perhaps, too, that maybe you've grown up in the church as a kid, and, and then you 
you never really embraced it when you went to college, and you never really got plugged back into the church, and then all of a sudden, you, you're, you're back in church. And you want to become a Christian, and you want to have faith. And you're trying so hard to have faith this morning. Perhaps you want to connect with God more. Perhaps you just hear it's like, I just, I want to connect with God more. I want to know God more. I want, I want to know what I seem to see in the Bible. And I want to experience God like at least that person next to me that's singing. I want to connect more. I want to experience more of what it means to be a Christian and be close with God. Maybe that's you and you're trying so hard to have faith. Maybe you just want to grow as a Christian. You're like, I want this area of my life to get fixed. I want it to change. I want my relationships to change. I've got wreckage over here. I need to be holier. I need life change. I need to get better. And maybe you're trying so hard to have faith. And maybe perhaps it's just you want God to answer your prayers because you've been praying for a child. You've been praying for this unanswered prayer. You've got this great need in your life, and you need the faith to actually believe that he's going to do it, and you're asking him for faith so that you can pray better and you can be used by him more. Perhaps that's you this morning. Please hear me. Stop. Just stop. Stop trying so hard. Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to stop, and then I want you to start with your need. It's at your need that you meet Jesus. Need meets Jesus, not self-effort. Weakness meets Jesus, not strength. Your need meets Jesus. Because in your need, Jesus takes you by the hand, he lifts you up, and you arise. Others of you, I know you, you're thinking, man, I feel my weakness, Jeff. Um, I feel my need. All I feel is wreckage and need. Please hear me. What you are experiencing is a gift from God. And you're like, man, I don't want any more of those gifts. Now, here's what I do want to say to you because I know you too. Um, don't sit in it now. It's an incredible gift. It's an incredible gift to actually feel desperate. It's an incredible gift to actually feel your need. It's an incredible gift to actually experience weakness. It's an incredible gift. It's love embodied for you. And you don't think it is, but it actually is. But here's what I want to say to you. I want you to say now, don't sit in it. If you sit in it, that's need without Jesus. What I want you to do and what this text is asking you to do is sit in it with Jesus. Need meets Jesus. Go unto Jesus. Take your need, your wreckage, your ruin, your weakness, your desperation, your distress, your heartache, your suffering, your unanswered prayers, your lack of relief to Jesus. 
and he takes you by the hand and lifts you up and you arrive. So, we forget God, right? Jesus tells us so. It's what we do. We need faith. Jesus tells us so. But it's the hardest thing in the world to do. But faith is need meeting Jesus. So meet Jesus at your need. And then he's going to reach down. He's going to take you by the hand and lift you up. 